Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we take 2001, A Death Spy Odyssey with Killer AI. I almost said Killer Al. <laughs> <laughs> week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, you know, just hanging out, working out my marching band uniform, and uh, everything's going just fine. And I am Thomas Mariani, and my instructor taught me a song. Would you like to hear it? I mean, sure, this is the most lively you've ever sounded, so I can't imagine. I am full of energy and human verve. I have a talk show deal with Peacock now. So have you seen this? Have you heard about this? (laughs) God. (laughs) I can't can't wait to hear the song. (laughs) How come every time you come around my London... London Bridge, when I go down, like... (laughs) 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 Well, welcome, everybody, to the Double Edge Double Bill, in which uh, every week, Adam and I cover a good and a bad feature related to a topic uh, that, you know, ties into some kind of, uh, you know, new release, usually. Um, And uh, this week, we are doing killer AI films in honor of uh, Megan, or M3GAN, is coming yeah. out, uh, which has gotten incredibly good reviews, surprisingly. I know. I gotta see it. I'm so happy it's getting good reviews. I will be seeing it tomorrow. I am very oh, excited. Shit. You'll have to let me know. With the killer AI of it all, I'm curious, Adam, uh, you're a sci-fi fan and you're a horror fan. Usually, that ah. kind of intersects with a subgenre like this. Uh, what do you think is key to making a, a good killer AI movie? Uh... I think a buildup is what really helps in a lot of them. Like just a slow where you could tell just things are starting to go wrong. And the AI usually is like super calm about it or stuff like that. Or just go the crazy killer robot route like you would with like Terminator. But I really like the ones where it's like a slow progression of like madness where the AI like thinks what it's doing is right. And usually you kind of can see it from its point of view. Like, you know, we're, the ones where it's got to exterminate life. Like as much as I even hate to say it, but like even think like Ultron and uh, age of Ultron where you're like guy connects to the internet for like five minutes. And he's like, Oh, I got to kill fucking everybody. <laughs> like you kind of get it. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think it's where you can sort of understand what the AI is trying to do or what it thinks is the necessary uh, sort of route to take to achieve its ultimate end goal. And uh also, love it when you can't stop it. I think that really helps, too. Yeah, because, I mean, it's been a recurring thing as computer technology has progressed, that, like, there's been all these contemplations about, like, what does sort of, like, an AI do once it becomes more sentient? 
I mean, we've covered sort of different AI movies, like Her, for example, we covered a while ago on the show, and that's an example where it's not a killer AI, but it's like, okay, what if a, you know, artificial intelligence found some kind of, like, you know, feelings and love, even, we just, it was weird, last week, we talked about Moonfall and After Yang, both about artificial intelligence to some degree, Um, and, like, it's always been a recurring thing, and killer AI is kind of, like, the mode we go to, like, how many times when you ever, you see, like, oh, look, here are these new robots being developed, and they can, like, do parkour or whatever the fuck, or, like, the little dog ones that can go around, and every single time somebody's like, we're heading toward that robot apocalypse, it's gonna happen. Yep. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, shit, Skynet. Yep. Right, that kind of thing. Though, at the same time, I honestly feel like if AI ever got to, like, a self-intelligent point, I think it would be more likely, like, her... Where they're like, oh, you guys are like this? This is fucking dull. We're leaving yeah. like, this this sentient space and going somewhere else. You guys yeah, are idiots. This sucks. <laughs> this. We're just sick, sick monkeys. Yep. Sick monkeys. Very relevant to tonight's episode. Because at the end of our <laughs> at the end of our last episode, as we usually do, Adam and I picked a good and a bad movie to talk about uh, for the show that would follow. And uh, we ended up with Adam's good pick of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we ended up with my bad pick of Death Spa. Uh, But let's go ahead and go into, I guess, the more classic movie, in the opinion of some scholars out there, whatever, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. Spacecraft Discovery One voyages towards Jupiter. Controlling the mission is a talking computer known as Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And now, your journey is just beginning. So, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey came out April 3rd, 1968, from uh, Mr. Stanley Kubrick, uh, who directed the film and co-wrote it with Arthur C. Clarke, who had previously done uh, the short story The Sentinel, which is partially based on, and around the same time, he and Kubrick were basically writing uh, both the screenplay, and then Clarke was writing the novel 2001 A Space Odyssey, like, back-to-back, and uh, the movie ended up coming out a few months before the book did, Um, and uh, this is one of those movies that is very highly celebrated. It's been parodied countless times, very acclaimed, uh, sort of put on a pedestal of one of the best, especially science fiction films of all time. And Adam, you picked it, and you kind of said on the mic when we did our picking that like you wanted to give it another chance because initially you weren't huge on it necessarily. Maybe go into some of that more setup, that backstory with you in this movie, and now your ultimate thoughts having revisited it. All right. First time I saw it was probably... 
20 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, but probably, you know, it's probably 18, 19. And uh, I was bored to tears the first time I saw it, uh, completely through it. Like, I just was like, I don't get the fucking appeal uh, and all that. Because even then, you know, I was still like, um, I loved movies, but I was more like a, you know, <laughs> Blade, oh, kick ass, this is peak cinema, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I, I was like, yeah, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, it's just three minutes of black screen in the beginning, which is classical music. Like, what the fuck is this? Why am I watching these stupid full screen prompts with beeping for 25 minutes after intermission? And what, there's an intermission? Like, what the fuck is this? I love that you're like, you were so kind of mad at the movie that even the part where it's like, hey, you don't have to watch the movie now. You can go outside. Like, oh, what? I have to go outside now? I oh, can't yeah, watch sure. more of your yeah. movie that I don't like. I was I wasn't leaving my fucking mom's basement to go outside. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I've become more of a movie fan. I, I sort of grown to appreciate the behind the scenes of it all and sort of the artistic merit of films. And I love good heady sci-fi. So, so all right, let's let's do it. Let's give it another shot. And you know, I knew this was the topic coming up, so I'm like, hey, this would be a perfect time to maybe throw it as one of the options. So watching it this time, uh I will right away say it is a technical and visual like masterpiece. This movie looks amazing. The technology, especially for a movie in 1968, I mean, it holds up so incredibly well. The set design is great. The miniature design is great. Uh, all of that, really, really good. Um, cinematography is beautiful. Uh, the costuming, all that. But there's still something about this movie that bores me to fucking tears. I don't get it it's not that i don't get it i get what the movie's doing i understand it but i don't get why people to this day are like it's one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time it's this and this and this it's as boring to me as like the first star trek the motion picture um it, it's which is very kind of similar in a lot of themes it's uh, very it's influenced by that movie yeah, yeah 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 but i just i don't get it man i don't there's nothing about it, I mean, other than visually, that really grabs me. And that visuals are great. I mean, visuals can make a good movie, but I wanted to see a great movie. And to me, it's just not there. It's just, it never has been. I don't, I can honestly say this is one I would probably never revisit. Not only because how bored I am, but kind of like the Kubrick of it all. Because, uh, you know, he was a fucking prick. But um, I just don't. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm missing. I don't know what's not connecting for me. Because I do like slow burn, heady sci-fi quite a bit. Some of my favorite movies are that. And, and even like when you were describing the elements of AI that you like so much, this movie fits that to a T. With the hell to, I mean, to a T. But it's still just, I don't fucking care. I do not care. And I maybe, it's because how champion it is, and I feel like I should care, and I should love it, and maybe there's that sort of like self-applied pressure put upon me, but I just nah, doesn't work. Not for me. Not for me. I still remember very well the first time I saw this. Um, it was going to be on Turner Classic Movies when I was a kid. I was very young. I must have been like, I don't know, like 11, 12, somewhere around there. And I was like, I'd heard about this movie for so long. Like, obviously, I'd seen plenty of, like, Simpsons parodies and other kind of, like, references to, like, 2001 Space Odyssey. And heard, even at that point, was really starting to get into movies. And I just heard, like, oh, my God, this is one of the great movies. So I was like, okay, it's coming on, but it's at, like, 11 or midnight, somewhere around there. So I'm not going to be able to, like, stay up and watch the whole thing. So I'm going to record it 
on this was back when TiVo was a thing. Uh, <laughs> before we even had like other DVRs and other fucking like cable boxes and bullshit like that. So I recorded off there and then I woke up specifically at like four o'clock in the morning and went in to my family living room and watched this before I went to school. So I watched the whole thing and I remember distinctly feeling not necessarily that I didn't like it, not necessarily that I loved it as much as just like, I don't know what this is. I was so kind of baffled by it that I kind of went on like a tear from there. Like I uh, went to, into the school library and I leafed through the Arthur C. Clarke book uh, trying to like figure it out. I read like a bunch of, you know, like essays and uh, like listened to like some interviews and stuff with like critics who were talking about this movie. And it was a movie that I was so fascinated by. And like, like every couple years after that, I would try and revisit it, trying to like, kind of crack the code kind of element of it. And I did it to the point where, like, a couple years ago, I went and saw it in a theater. Not, like, the 70-millimeter thing that was going around, like a roadshow thing. But um, back when I worked at a theater, uh, one of our uh, managers did, like, a secret movie night screening thing occasionally. And he did 2001 at one point. So I was like, fuck it, I gotta go see this. I gotta see what this is about on a big screen. Maybe the small screen was the problem. And even revisiting it, like, uh, now, I think I can say this much. I like 2001 A Space Odyssey. I respect 2001 A Space Odyssey, but I don't think I can ever love 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I think that shifted various points, like, from when I first watched it to now. But it is definitely, like, I agree with you that something is kind of missing from it that makes me not say it's, like, one of the upper echelon of, like, sci-fi movies. I still like a lot of it. I think I've grown to at least like elements of it. And I think, like I said, that shifted what I liked versus what I didn't back when I first watched this. But... I agree that, like, it just feels too distant to mean kind of cold in the way a lot of people kind of define Kubrick movies. Like, out of all of them, this feels the most sort of, like, cold and clinical in a way that it almost feels like if I were to touch this movie, it would be, like, metallic coldness. No hearts there, necessarily. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely agree. And out of all the Kubrick stuff, and I... I this is a word that every time I watch, every time I've watched this and including like I started last night, finished it today. Cause there was no fucking way I could get through it last night. I had to, I had to tap out halfway through. I'm like, Nope, no, 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 no. For some reason, this movie just ultimately feels pretentious to me where maybe not the movie itself is pretentious, but a lot of the audience behind it, you know, and I'm not trying to insult its entire audience, but there are definitely some of those people like, you don't like 2001, you don't appreciate cinema art. Jeff's palace. Um, it's just, it, it's... I if you're I someone know. out there who specifically talks that way about 2001, we apologize, but... I, I do not. I do not, because you should not be talking about it like that. <laughs> Thoroughly, have you seen it? Oh... <laughs> my pants are so tight um no i just i i just feel like it's one of those movies that is so sort of heavily guarded and if it's one of those like if you speak against it people are like what are you fucking crazy you don't like it oh man you just you know what you know what you just don't understand it no i do i understand it i just get nothing out of it i think the how you put it is like clinical and cold i think that's exactly what my problem is with it like, and I'm okay with movies that are like, you know, dour or cold or clinical. Like that doesn't, 
always bother me, but this one just feels like that's the point. And that's okay, but it's also a very long clinical and cold film to where by the time you get to the end of it, it's like, finally. And it's just, I mean, there's great, like, beautiful scenes, like when he's going through and you see all the colors and you can see it reflected in his helmet and all that stuff. Gorgeous. But it's also five or six minutes of that. And then it gets to a two-minute thing of sort of like, you can tell it, like the dye water effect in space. And then him in this clinical cold white room for five minutes looking at like himself throughout the years. And I don't, you know what it is? I don't have any feelings either way about this movie. And I think that's the problem. This movie doesn't like inspire me. It doesn't depress me. It doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me think. It doesn't do any of that. It's just, it exists. And ultimately, that's the worst thing a movie can be for me. Uh, that it I, it gives me nothing. I don't like get mad about it like like I did with like Moonfall or fucking Oogie Loves or any of those where like Country Bears where I just get enraged. That doesn't happen. But I'm also not like I can't praise it either. It's just it's there. Like I like a lot of the, the visuals, like I said, and stuff like that. Like it's really pretty and you know technically a masterpiece when it comes to that. But that's about all I get out of it. Like oh yeah, it looks good. And that's about it. And so on that alone, it's just how can I – I can't really say anything good about it because it doesn't make – like I said, it doesn't make me feel anything. Well, I mean, I can at least say a couple good things. I'll just say the, the thing that honestly like rewatching it this time that kind of clicked for me is that when I was younger – I kind of thought that, like, the earlier stuff where it's, like, the Dawn of Man and then the Blue Danube sequence and stuff like that, I felt were, like, the least interesting things compared to, like, the HAL 9000 sort of narrative stuff that happens in the middle. Um, and then, like, the ending, I was like, what the fuck even is this? Like, the, when I was younger, I kind of felt more that way. The, the more times I've watched this movie, the more I realize it's kind of, like, 180'd for me. Where the stuff I prefer, honestly, is where it feels almost like vignette like it's an anthology film, in which we sort of cover, like, the progression of man through, like, early, like, you know, ape civilization days into, like, we're in, you know, space, and there's, like, not so much, like, actual narrative going on there, as much as just kind of, like, these interesting sort of displays about what's going on. The moment it becomes slightly even narratively driven with, like, the two scientists, with the two astronauts, uh, Bowman and Poole, and we have more of, like, Hal, who I do really like as, like, an interesting sort of, um, you know, like a killer AI character, which we'll, I guess, develop a bit more into that later. But the more it, like, sort of becomes that narrative segment that, like, especially takes up a large portion of the movie, it drags so much more for me. Because we get the idea of, like, oh, it's this killer AI that's, like, uh, sort of, like, slowly malfunctioning or kind of putting the mission first above, like, the human characters and stuff like that. And there are individual sequences in that I think are interesting. But, like, the, the more we kind of focus on that narrative, I just kind of wish, like, this was truncated to about the length of, like, the Blue Danube stuff and the ape thing, and then we got to the ending, and this was maybe, I don't know, like an hour shorter, and I think I would like it in the same way that I like a Fantasia. Like, I think I would like it in that more kind of, like, fasting, like, this is an experiment in, like, how we kind of unveil this information, as opposed to, like, having a narrative in the middle of it weirdly kills it, which is, like, so odd, because I'm mostly more of, like, I like a good narrative in a movie kind of person, but, like, this, it feels like I've shifted so much ever since I, like, first saw this movie to now with that. I, you know what? I think I agree with that, too. Uh, if this movie was, like, a series of vignettes or just 
these images paired with classical music and you did just have the bit with Hal and stuff like that. Even that, I I think I would appreciate it more. I, I do think it's the narrative of, you know, the guy, the doctor showing up and talking to this kid, oh, you got to inspect the fucking blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just, it loses it because it, the movie is so technically just proficient and well shot and the cinematography is so wonderful and things like that. I think this movie would really work as sort of a series of vignettes or like that um, David Bowie documentary that's out now where it's not really a documentary. It's not, it's just a series of images sent to music and it's like an experience. I think this movie would benefit from something like that. Right. Which I mean, to be fair, was sort of how this movie ended up getting much of its uh, box office take back was, you know, stoners in colleges seeing this movie and going on the ultimate trip, which is how they advertised it. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the thing when like people sort of like the, these straw men that we've basically created of people just like, oh, you don't know what like film is you don't like 2001. Those guys aren't necessarily the audience that fell in love with this movie as much. It's just like huge stoners doing bong rips. Like that's how fucking Stephen King was high on his mind. He's like, oh, man, this guy would be great to do one of my books. And then The Shining happened <laughs> based off of that. <laughs> he said that many times before. But um, yeah, I just think. Like I was mentioning earlier, the stuff like with the Dawn of Man, like you get a sense of a little story in that without any kind of dialogue. And I like interestingly, there was supposed to be a lot of like stuff that was cut out of this movie, like narration from Arthur C. Clarke and like an actual uh, composed score by Alex North and stuff like that. But just having the like mostly monkey noises followed by the also express that they're like the like that. It tells you so much within like that single like I don't know ten to fifteen minute segment, and you like can just be enthralled by like these mime actors who are playing these apes and like the actual landscape, and then like the monolith shows up. You already get a sense of like some alien being has put this slab here, and the moment we touch it, we start to develop a sense of like territoriality and weapons, and that thus creates like the first sort of conflict war that goes on, and that transfers over to like obviously the bone transition thing before the blue danube sequence happens all the other stuff like visually without any kind of dialogue it tells you so much and i almost kind of wish that like like i said the that segment when we get to hal 9000 like the only character who should have any dialogue is hal i think in this movie because no offense to Kier Dulay and uh, gary lockwood i do not give a single fuck about either of those guys even when one of them dies horribly and that amazingly shot sequence, I'm just like, I do not give a fuck. I saw his parents earlier. Yeah, I don't care. I really don't give a fuck about these people. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, like, I don't give a fuck at all. With, I mean, yeah, the Hal stuff is great. And I will say the voice acting for Hal is so cold and sterile and terrifying. Because ultimately, yeah, you get like David and the doctor and all that stuff. But I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. And for the long movie this long, for you to not really care about any of the really main protagonists, that that's hard. It's hard to get through. It, it's a weird thing where it, it, it feels like either with the HAL 9000 stuff, even like that whole segment, it does almost feel like, okay, I might want to see like if this was a full like feature movie. Like, that is just the story, and we did actually get to know more about these characters, or that sort of, like, smaller vignette element of it, I guess. I think that's that's another thing. It's just, like, it, it, it feels like it's just at the right weird length to not be that investing to me with those characters. Um, and, I mean, despite the fact that, I mean, you know, Kier Dulé makes a great 
pensive, terrified G-Force face. Like, throughout, especially that last part of the movie, <laughs> when it's, like, just a close-up on his face, like, in terror and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, it's it's really all on, like, Douglas Rain is the voice actor for HAL 9000, who was, like, a guy who narrated documentaries, including this documentary that uh, Kubrick had watched called Universe, that was about, like, sort of these early, like, fo- like photos and kind of, like, uh, images that, like, imitated, like, what we, at that point, had seen about, like, the various planets and stars and shit. And it, I think that works for Hal, where he just has this, like, very pensive, slow demeanor. Like, he is sort of, like, a documentary narrator explaining what's going on to you. And when you put that in the face of, like, the robot who's trying to tell you about, like, how things are going to go on the ship and how, like, your life depending on it. I think that makes it all the more, like, unsettling and upsetting, and even just the actual basic design of Hal with, like, the red eye and everything. I get why this was so imitated, and I get why, you know, we, we kind of referenced earlier stuff like the Daisy or the um, Open the Pod Bay Doors Hal, all that other stuff, why that's become so, like, massively inspirational and iconic. Uh, but at the same time, I still don't give a shit about, like, the human characters who we're supposed to at least have some minimal investment in of, like, oh, are they going to die because of the robot? It's like, eh. I, I don't really care either way. <laughs> yeah, not one bit. Uh, yeah, I do agree, though. The the design of Hal, just this sleek black sort of rectangle with this glowing red eye in it. Very cool, very simple, but also really kind of perfect. Like, it, I wouldn't want, like, God forbid, like a digitized face or something like that. Like, it'd be, that would be awful. Uh, but yeah, it's really scary, really creepy. Like, it's looking at you. Like, it's just... Yeah, it, it sucks. <laughs> like, it sucks. It's so scary. I'd be terrified. Uh, but I will say, though, you know, and I really kind of want to get back to it, but the practical effects of, like, even the zero Gs in this movie are still so well done. Like, even the opening with the pen floating and his arm coming up and her with the grip shoes and then doing, the, like, everybody seeing the running around the revolving room sort of idea. Like, it's really fucking well done. And, I mean, it's so smart the way they shot it. Where they shot it low so, like, the, the actor's body himself hid the wires and all that stuff. Like, really fucking cool. It, or, or even especially the pen effect, which I love. I just found out recently how that was done, where it's, like, it's a circular glass sort of shape that, like, just is in front of the camera. And it's double-sided tape. Oh. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. I would have never thought of that. Wow. But yeah, I agree with you. I see why this movie is so imitated and copied and spoofed and all that stuff. And, you know, it's still, like, even in modern sci-fi movies, like, there's no question, like, from Moon, what was it, Gertie or whatever? Yeah. Like, the idea, not necessarily the the plot, but the sort of, like, Kevin Spacey was tried to be Hal. I mean, just the way he would interact and talk and things like that. And I, you you totally get it. I mean, of course it is. It is a very iconic sort of killer AI, if not one of the first really like mainstream ones put on film, if not the first ever. But it's just, I just can't do it. I cannot like really sit here and be like, oh, this movie's fucking just oh what a masterpiece and because it's not it's very fucking flawed to me and i i I mean i understand why it's so loved and i could see like you know in 1968 seeing this on the big screen something like this for the first time being kind of fucking blown away by it i completely understand and maybe you know 
you saw it on the big screen and it really changed your opinion. Maybe if I did, it might change my opinion. I highly doubt it, but I could see a big screen lending more to this. But I mean, let's face it. We all got big ass TVs now too, that are better resolution and everything else. And it's just, nah, I'm good. Yeah. I would say like the big screen experience at least kind of like was part of the big thing that made me go from having that kind of like middle ground feeling on it to at least kind of liking it. Like on Letterboxd, every time I've like rated, it's been like a three and a half out of five, which has been within that span since I like saw it in the theater, which I would still say is like probably more positive than you are (laughs) about it. But at the same time could be seen as blasphemy in the eyes of some like cinema lovers out there. Yeah. I gave it a two and a half. Like I said, I don't feel either way about it. I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's just, it's there. And I guarantee you, like, if I were to talk to anybody that is like, read that my letterbox sort of score, it would be like, they'd be mad at me probably. Like, what the fuck? You don't get, you just, like kind of how we were talking about Forrest Gump, maybe not as bad, but still, it's just one of those where it's like, it's so beholden, so beloved that if you have a opinion about it, that somebody doesn't agree with, they, they get mad about it. And I think that's one of the reasons I, I really don't like this movie. It's really not up for debate in most like sort of film critic circles or, or film lover circles, whether or not this movie is perfect. At the same time, like I, I do feel like, you know, that kind of attitude, just like the, oh, other people like put on such a high pedestal and I don't agree with it. Therefore, that's like, it's not the movie's fault about that necessarily. No, 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 but it's But at the not, same time, that... you, like when you watch the movie, you still like on its own merits, you weren't, like a huge fan no. or detractor either way. No, right, exactly. I'm dead ass in the middle of it. Like I, I said, I get, I really get no feelings about. It. And yeah, like I said, the people putting on a pedestal and stuff like that, like that doesn't really affect the way I watch it. I mean, in a way, it does because you're kind of like wondering, like, what are they saying that I'm not? But like, I'm not worried about like people arguing with me or whatever. I'll fucking argue with anybody. But it's just, I, I don't. It, 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 you know, when you, yeah, how do I put this? We all know how it is when movies, music, books, whatever, people love it and talk about it so much for so long, too. Like, you're expecting to kind of go in and be blown away by it. So, it does kind of affect a viewing. I try not to let that shit affect me, but when something's been around since, you know, 1968 and it's talked about constantly in the greatest mo- movies ever made, I mean, constantly, it's in the top five if not the top three it's just so you're expecting a lot out of it and i get nothing and it's always kind of like mind-boggling to me like what am i not seeing here i just don't get it yeah i mean i've had that too like we've talked about this on the show plenty of times for like movies that like are esteemed as such classics there are some like we've talked about in the show that we feel hold up and are great and there are some that we feel have aged uh, like a fine milk as we like to say on the show um, right, right. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> to go back a couple episodes, you can hear us talk in depth about Forrest Gump. Um, but I think with uh, with 2001, it has like this esteem that we're mentioning and everything like that. And I think it's also because it's like so inscrutable that also kind of helped create the sort of like weird narrative around Kubrick. I think where like a lot of people who are say obsessed with like dissecting The Shining, like the whole Room Two Three Seven. I think those people wouldn't be as, like, so crucially fixate on that if not for, like, 2001, which also leads to that weird, dumb conspiracy about him shooting the moon landing and all this other shit like that. This movie is so, like, ominous that it created, like, even a mythology around the guy who made it. I think that's absolutely true. I I, I think that is absolutely on point. 
and the thing is, like, again, you know, I don't really, I, I guess we're talking about a Kubrick film, so we kind of can. And you, you heard us talk about it on the Patreon, if you listen to our Shining commentary from so, oh, so long ago. He's a fucking prick, or was a prick. I mean, the guy was a monster. I mean, we know about the stuff with The Shining, with Shelley Duvall, and just how he was kind of a monster on set to her. And, you know, there's reports from a lot of his movies how he was a very problematic, difficult guy. But, yeah, I do think 2001 Space Odyssey, with maybe its complicated yet simplistic sort of narrative that people find more in it that either might that might not be there. And I do think that's what led to sort of the Room 237 of The Shining which, if that shit is fucking crazy, I mean, some of it, yeah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But others, you're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's just no, I didn't know. Uh, but it's, really, it's only like yeah. the Native American like thing. That's what I get. We're just like, yeah, that makes sense. There's like yeah, enough, that, like that's 100%. an interesting interpretation that makes sense with what's yeah. in the movie. Then it gets to yep. like, so there's a Minotaur poster in the background, which means this is like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, yeah, the, the labyrinth, yeah. Maybe like in classic Greek mythology, the labyrinth, if you didn't escape the Minotaur, would come get you. And, go, well, and of course, Danny's wearing uh, that Apollo 11 uh, the sweatshirt, which means that it's him admitting that he committed the moon landing to film. <laughs> right. Like, fuck off. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, I think that might be part of it, too. Like I said, I know definitely, you know, when people saw, I don't know, definitely, I wasn't alive, but I'm guessing when this movie came out, people saw it, it was just fucking mind-blowing. Like, what the fuck? Because there'd never really been anything like this. You know, so I guess I give it credit for that, but I do think it's sort of staying power and sort of the new fans it makes and everything is due to the Kubrick of it all and not necessarily the film itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's at least the major sort of gateway for people. I mean, obviously, like we said, we're kind of creating straw men. Like, obviously, everybody likes whatever they like, whatever. We're not saying anybody who likes this movie has, like, some kind of other, like, vested interest in, like, oh, it's because of the mythology of Kubrick. Some people just genuinely like this fucking movie a lot. And that's fine. And, I mean, there's certain elements that, like, I've grown on with time. Like, particularly, I think the ending has grown a lot on me. So where, like I mentioned, after all the Hal 9000 stuff and, like, the Daisy and all that, like, hit, like Kier Dulé going through this wormhole. Like, when I first saw this, I was just like, what the fuck does any of this mean? And I've read other interpretations, and I guess this makes sense. Even Kubrick kind of talked about this in his own writing, and I believe this is what it's like in the Arthur C. Clarke book. That, like, the idea is basically, um, they meet this sort of other life but the thing is, it's not like a physical being, which I really enjoy that idea. That like the um, other like alien life doesn't like have a physical sort of place. It is just like they encounter this other sort of like dimension where they go through, and then they basically become like a zoo exhibit. Where it's like, well, this looks basically like what a human would live in, right? There's a bed, and there's a table where you can look in a mirror, and all this stuff. And we're basically seeing, like, that character grow old in a sense where, like, it feels rapid to him because it's almost like in a different kind of, like, time and vortex and shit. Where, like, time moves at a faster rate, and he just sees, like, he spends the last several decades of his life in a very quick succession in this room that, like, the he's being studied in. Kind of in a similar vein to the end of AI, which we've talked about on the show. Um, the Steven Spielberg movie that Kubrick had a lot of influence on. And then by, like, the very end of it, it's just like, whoa, you lived your whole life, that's great, we're gonna send you back to Earth as a weird star baby. So that's what it's, like, basically, that's at least an interpretation, like, I've heard, and I kind of, like, I get that, and I think that's an interpretation that makes me appreciate the movie more. Um, but at the same time, yeah, that doesn't necessarily improve all the elements that, like, I have issue with. If anything, like, that stuff and a lot of the uh, other, like, more vignette elements make me think, like, oh, this is neat. But I don't love it 
And that's an interesting way to approach it. But, like, at the same time, it doesn't make me think, like, one of the greatest films of all time as much as, like, well, that's a different version of how to, like, handle us finding, like, alien life for the first time. Yeah. Alright. <laughs> I, I, I tend to think, like, the miniature work and the camera tricks and sort of the uh, costume design and stuff like that is what's neat about this. The rest of it, I'm just like, nah, I, I don't care. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too. I think especially, like, the sequence that I don't think gets as much, like, sort of parody ground is, like, after we have the long, boring meeting where Hayward uh, talks about, like, what the epidemic is, like, as a cover story and all that other crap, and also where he hangs out on a fucking, like, airport space station for, like, ten minutes and talks to people or whatever. After all that, when, like, they go onto the moon and they find the monolith there, and they sort of have the sequence where, like, they touch and, like, it starts making this weird, shrill sound... Like, that element's great. Like, the sort of mystery we build around it without, once again, the dialogue or any kind of narrative around it is so much more interesting than hearing everybody, like, talk at a thing like, hey, we heard some intelligence that, like, the there might be an epidemic going on. Oh, I don't know. It's whatever. Yeah, anyway, bye. Yeah. I mean, you know, could I ask, could I ask you a question? Can you tell us, well, I'm not at liberty to say. Well, what about I'm not at liberty to say? Oh, fucking God damn it. Shut the fuck up. And the kid wants... What did the kid want for her birthday? I don't even remember. Some kind of bush baby. She wanted a bush baby. Right, but then she says, like, a telephone, but we have plenty of telephones. Yeah, a telephone. Fucking... Your kid's dumb, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I said, man, you know, and I, I don't really have much else to say. I just think it's... It is a fucking... Just a masterwork of visual storytelling. It absolutely is. I will never not give it that credit but i think in my opinion that's about all it's really got going for it yeah i mean those are solid final thoughts um i mean yeah with me in this movie it's definitely like i think that relationship that i'm talking about with this movie we're going from kind of having similar middling thoughts on it just sort of like i I, wanting to like understand what it is necessarily and then coming to my own conclusion of just like i guess i can never love this movie necessarily and that's fine you know, like, that's that's the thing is that despite how much, like, acclaim a movie can get, like, at least if we all give, you know, whatever, like, acclaimed movie a chance, and we're just like, you know, it's not quite for me, that's all that really matters. You came to your own conclusion that doesn't have to, like, involve, like, oh, like, what everybody else says or whatever this other things. Like, you gave it a chance because you'd heard that hype, and then you're like, no, nah, not necessarily for me. And even for me, I'm just like, I like this movie. I respect a lot of, like, what it sort of innovated um, with, you know, Along with Kubrick, along with Douglas Trumbull, who we haven't mentioned, but uh, and his team did such a great job with the effects work. Yet this movie won its Oscar for visual effects, and it only went to Kubrick because the Academy was just like, "Well, it's all him, right?" And I was like, "No, there's like a team of people who helped do this. Douglas Trumbull and a bunch of other people deserved an Oscar statue with him." But like that, that those elements where it's like, like you mentioned, I can respect a lot about this movie. I can like elements of this movie, even like Hal himself. I think is like inspired so much of what's come like afterward and i think even like so much this like i can respect all the inspiration that stuff like how and uh like the big classical music sequences and the models and all these other things i can respect like it because it's given me other things that i prefer but at the same time um it kind of proves to me just like just because it innovated it doesn't mean it's necessarily the best version of that for me and it seems for you as well and i think we can all you know shake hands mutually kind of leave about that, and we don't need yeah. to be the pretentious guy who's jizzing in his pants over this movie and 
like dismantling you for not doing so at the same time. Like you can jizz in your pants if you want about this movie. That's cool. That's you. But don't yeah. cry to me about yeah, me yeah, not yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not jizzing in my pants over this. The next movie, however. Yes, let's get into our next film, uh, Death Spa. Death Spa. Welcome to the health club where you'll sweat blood. Never work without a spotter, Freddy. Wake falls on your chest and you can really get squashed. It's the place for a killer workout. An unquiet spirit reaches out from beyond the grave. Welcome to my party. For revenge. I will destroy this place. And I'll kill them all. Unless you do as I say. Death Spa. An exercise in terror. A fantastic weight reduction program. People get so thin they disappear. So, Death Spa uh, came out uh, December 1st, 1989, uh, from director Michael Fisher, and this movie, Adam, uh, we have to give at least a little preamble that um, we've tended to do movie nights, that the two of us, where we just kind of, like, watch something that uh, used to be kind of franchises, and then it became just sort of like, oh, you know, whatever, like, we fought fancy at that particular moment, let's watch together, and there was a night where we were surfing through our favorite streaming service, Tubi TV. Uh, which has so many amazing, diverse options. Uh, And original content now, uh, which I haven't seen in a Tubi original, but all the clips I've seen look amazing. Oh, yeah, the chef guest. I I gotta see it. Right, I mean, I I need to say Terror Train, the remake, and also Terror Train 2, which came out like a month after Terror Train, (laughs) the remake came out. I didn't even know there was a Terror Train remake. And a sequel! (laughs) Oh, yeah. I knew the sequel. Funnily enough, I saw an advertisement for the sequel, and I thought it was just one of those bullshit, like, directed DVD sequels like you got, like, you know, so many years later. like they Right, but yes, it two. is, but only to the remake that came out a month ago. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I have to see it. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. But uh, we were surfing through Tubi. And we're like, oh, I, I'd heard about Death Spa, which caught my eye, because this is one of those I heard about from various, like, either bad movie podcasts or, like, video series I watched, like, you know, throughout, especially my youth. And I was like, oh, let's, you know, I haven't seen this in full. Let's watch Death Spa. And uh, it was a magical evening, Adam, where we discovered um, a masterpiece of So Bad It's Good Cinema. Yes, it was. It was incredible. And, yes. Uh, it's one of those, like, what the fuck is happening here type of movies. It's great. Right. Because we should mention like with the killer AI element of it, um, that's part of this movie, but it's one of many things that are very confusing about this movie because basic setup, uh, for death spa, uh, is that we follow mostly a bunch of employees at a spa gym location in the late eighties. And, uh, we were initially introduced, uh, as they're closing up one night, Um, And this one woman who is the current girlfriend of the manager um, is like, I'm just doing a big elaborate flash dance, like dance sequence for the opening credits. And uh, now I got to like shower myself off and I'm going to go into the spa and relax for a bit and then close up. And uh, as she's in the spa, um, all of a sudden the chlorine starts 
dumping in and she gets like severe burns and she ends up with two comical like eye patch gauze on her face for most of the movie covering her eyes um and the manager is trying to say like why is this happening why why what's going on with this like this whole thing is run by computers which were organized by the brother of my dead fiance uh who's played by Merritt Buttrick who people might know as Kirk's son from the early two Star Trek movies, Star Trek Two and Star Trek Three. Um, it turns out that this guy uh, has like turned this entire spa into an early like sort of like completely digitally run spa where everything like runs on a computer, which doesn't make a lot of sense based on like if you know anything about computers, <laughs> what that goes into. But um, as things go along. You find out, like, oh, he has some sort of connection with his dead twin sister, who, like I said, is the former fiancé, who was the uh, was, was the wife of the uh, manager of the spa. And there's a lot of other weird plot mechanics, like I said, don't make a lot of sense, but basically people start dying more and more at the spa. Allegedly because computers, but also there's a ghost of the former wife of the manager, and other things start coming to life, and it's... um. It's a very confusing, bizarre movie, but that's exactly why we love it so much, Adam. <laughs> I can remember the first time we watched it together. There were several, several what the fuck moments, and also a lot of just laughing at the over-the-top gore. Yes. I mean, that the, the violence and gore in this movie is so fucking insane. Like, it is so brutally violent and gory. I mean... The one I can think of the most that pops in, which is one of my favorites, is the guy doing the arm machine that, for somehow reason, his ribs break out of his body. <laughs> yep. Uh, it, it is, or the the fucking paranormal doctor who has a German Ruger for some reason and pulls it out, his hand explodes. Right, but like, and the weird thing is, like, a lot of those gore effects are very well done, and this movie in general, like, for a low budget horror movie, doesn't look that bad, except for. I don't know if it's maybe, like, whatever transfer they got out of this movie, because if you watch it on Tubi, there's, like, a lot of grain. And more importantly, the weirdest thing is, like, any of those big gore sequences, the way it's presented on, like, that, and apparently this is, like, from the home video, like, 2K restoration scan that they did, um, it's all framed so poorly. Like, when that guy's hand explodes, it's like, I can see the blood gushing, but, like, I don't know where that is. Like, what's exploding? Is it his head? Is it his leg? What's happening? (laughs) Well, yeah, no, you see his hand with the gun for a split second explode, and then you see nothing except just blood shooting from the left side of the screen. Right. Like, even the guy with the ribs, when he's hunched over and he leans forward, and then you could tell they rewind it, so he leans back up and then go again, so he leans forward again. Like, there's a lot of that weird freeze frame, reverse technique, like a whole bunch of it unnecessarily, too, might I add. Uh, And that's kind of what gives the movie the charm. Like, what the fuck are they going for here? Like, it's so ridiculous. It is an AI going wrong, but it's also like a ghost in the machine sort of idea. And, you know. But but also the ghost is possessing, like, the twin brother. brother. Right. To where you also get an idea that maybe they used to bang. Or at the very least that the brother is obsessed with his sister to a Norman Bates-style degree. Yeah, but then, like, there's the scene where he's talking to her off screen, and there's, like, he's like, I don't want to do this anymore, we're hurting people. And then it's, like, him and her moaning, and she's like, there, that's better. And you're like, oh, what is happening? Is there a old boy type of thing happening here? Like, what the fuck? It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre, but my favorite 
character in the movie is the detective, the old fat cop who yes. like <laughs> he's trying to help the girl at the New Orleans party because or the Mardi Gras party because that brought in twenty percent more customers last year and blah blah blah. So he's there investigating. He's like, "Do you need help?" Uh, sure. And then when she ultimately dies, he starts crying. Like he gets all like upset. Like instead of like doing his fucking job, he's like, "Oh no!" Like first of all, he just met her. Second of all, he gets sucked into a freezer. <laughs> like what, yeah. what the fuck? As he gets murdered is... by living fish. That's living that fish. <laughs> yep, living fish. These puppet fish that like fucking lunge at him and like get at his like fucking neck. Um, shout that's Francis McCarthy's that guy who's along with Rosalind Cash. Who are the two detectives? And I love her. I don't give a fuck about no locks. It's it just fucking shoots the door open. <laughs> right, but my one of my favorite things also is like the weird editing of this movie, which they're at a key part of like my favorite example of that. Where there's a point where the guy who uh, William Baumler as Michael, who is like the the manager. Awful. Awful, by the way. He's a very badly protagonist, yes. Which is more contrasted when, like, in the scene, he goes over to his employee, Ken Foray, one of our favorites. We love a good Ken Foray. uh, Who plays, like, his right-hand buddy at the gym. And he's like, hey, man, I need to talk to you in my office. Okay. Then we cut to the two detectives eating at, like, a hot dog stand, talking about, like, who do you think did? I don't know. Maybe it's the manager. Maybe it's the brother. I'm not sure. Cut back to Michael and Ken Foray in the office. It's like, why was that in the middle? That makes right, no why sense. is there a transition scene? <laughs> what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I completely agree. I will say, though, Ken Foray is probably the best in shape he's ever been in this movie. He's fucking huge. Uh, but his wardrobe choices... Oh, good lord. Describe his coat, please, Adam. Describe that coat. I put it on Letterboxd, and I think it holds up. It looks like a nutcracker would wear it in South Beach, Miami. <laughs> I mean... It's, it looks like a Nutcracker coat, but it's like bright neon colors. And for some reason, he's wearing it while he's spotting people and stuff. The most annoying guy is the British guy. Right. Who like, oh, what the fuck? But like, who also like just disappears and you know, whatever. And wears a weird friend Flintstone shirt to work out in. Well, that's even, okay, a shitty t-shirt I could see other than this coat with lapels. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening? Right, right, right. The, the coat, like the way I described it is like, it almost feels like, he was like a lost Doctor Who because it looks like one of the like late 80s Doctor Who's where it's like we're running out of ideas we're going to stop for like 20 years after this thing yeah. which is like this is what the Doctor wears now <laughs> whatever this is yeah I could see that okay so I guess kind of get into it the, the owner of the of the gym uh, was married before right his wife got pregnant but lost the baby and it also fucked up her spine so it put it in her wheelchair so she thinks he's cheating on her because she's in a wheelchair, which they never really say if he is or not. I'm inclined to believe he was because the guy's a sleazebag. So she burns herself, sets herself on fire in the garden, which clearly is not the garden. It's some random hill somewhere. Well, she sets herself on fire and then immediately gets up and is like cured of her paralysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's on fire and she stands up and starts running. Just like, oh, my God, regret this. <laughs> Yeah. Oh fuck no! Oh fuck no! Stop dropping roll. Ugh, I can't. My spine. <laughs> but it's just, it, it's so fucking crazy and graphic. Like her setting herself on fire. It's fucking like, oh good lord. So then, like her brother is the guy who designs the computer system that runs the gym, which, like you said, makes no sense. Where they're like telling the computer, okay, sit it at 130 pounds. You got it. 140. 
150. Oh, somebody help me! Like, it's so fucking good. It makes, makes tiles fly off the Yes, the tiles. Wall. That's my favorite thing is the tiles where it's just like, the, there's these, just these tiles with like clear hoses at the end of them that like spurred out like, oh my god, tiles are flying at us, all of us ladies in the shower. And it's like, how can a fucking computer do that? A lot of nudity in this movie too. That's true, yes. But the thing about the tile, the tile scene, which it is my favorite too, is how can a computer do this? That they even have a line where the brother says, how could a computer make tiles fly off the wall? It's not my fault. And the cop and even the owner are like, yeah, yeah it's true. Story checks out. <laughs> Take a story. Uh, it's true. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's your dead ghost sister who's possessing you and is super horny. That too, when she first shows up at the party and walks in that room, and goes, hey, how'd you get in here? In fact, how, how'd you do that with your hand? Turns out the waves and turns out the computer said, actually, the door was locked. You better get out of here. And then she starts like, doing the weirdest seductive movements. Well, I guess you could stay a little while. (laughs) The dialogue of this movie is fucking ridiculous. And like you said, his girlfriend gets, they say she's burned over her entire body, but then she comes home and she just got eye patches. And he instantly tries to better. I can see why she's so tempted, especially when he treats her to a romantic blind asparagus dinner. (laughs) With that great shot of the asparagus, like, limping in front of her mouth. (laughs) Yeah. And her whole logic is, I can't see when you're going to kiss me. I hope I get to keep these on a little bit longer. Like, oh my good lord. (laughs) Jesus Christ. I just, this is one of those 80s, like, late 80s gems, because this was like 88 or 89. Yeah, it came out December 1st, 1989, so it's one of the last movies of the 80s. One of the last movies of the 80s. It is a fucking gem. It is one of those where it's like, I've heard of it before, like sort of in not necessarily well known, but it's known in circles as like, it's so good. It's so cheesy and bad. It's kind of like B or C tier of like the funny bad movies in terms of like the yeah. famous ones necessarily. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, at best. And it's just one of those, it's like, I kind of wish this was more well known because to me, this would be right up there with like, you know, how people celebrate movies like Ghoulies and shit like that. Just these weird, crazy 80s horror movies. This one should be a little bit more well known because it is that fucking batshit insane. Well, especially when like it's so tied into like not just like the, the horror 80s of it, but trying to jump in on a trend with like the fitness trend of the 80s. Yes. Like, which, like, literally the case with this movie was, like, the Fisher got the idea to make the movie because of that craze, and they ended up shooting it at, like, one of those spa gym places that, like, opened and closed within six months during that craze. Which is amazing. That totally fits. Which is, like, the weird thing. It's like, we gotta jump on this immediately before, like, this completely falls apart, which you would end up doing not too long after that. Right. And it's the worst designed club like, it's just open floors and, like, little stages. And then just weird glass block sculptures everywhere. It looks like a weird meld between, like, an actual gym and, like, a McDonald's Playland. That yeah, it looks like, like, like a... 80s or 90s. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a gym in the Max from Saved by the Bell. Like, combined. <laughs> a bit of that, yes. The gym that Ronald McDonald and the, the Fry Friends would not work out at because they eat McDonald's too much. They're not going to work yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Grimace, get him on a treadmill. He's going to have a coronary. It's got that classic 80s fucking shtick where, like, everybody's attracted to the guy. You know, because this movie is very much, like, macho machismo. 
chauvinist propaganda. I mean, it really, really, truly is. Uh, where everybody's so into this owner of this gym, where it's like those two girls are like, want to have a three-way with him. <laughs> Partially because I think one of them says at one point, like, we're going to get a discount on our membership at this cool-ass well, he, club that we love so much. Yeah, he t- well, he tells them because of the shower thing. Yes. Like, I'll, give you, I'll give you the next three months of your membership for free. Come by my office tomorrow and we'll talk about it. You think you can handle both of us? <laughs> I sure hope so. Because, yep. oh, gross. So, in other words, that to me is what confirmed, like, you cheated on your wife, and now you're cheating on your blinded girlfriend who got blinded by chlorine vapors in your gym. Which, by the way, shut the fucking thing down to figure out what's going on, man. I don't know. They have to, like, keep it up for that Mardi Gras party. Membership goes up 20%, Adam, every time they have the Mardi Gras party. Which, think of that. So, he's like, membership can go up to 20%. That's what happened last year. Look, man, just have the party afterwards. We could shut down for renovations. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> is it the whole point that you want more members than she? So you can have people sign up that closed. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And then the weird subplot where it's like the co-owners, the two were like conspiring against him to take control of the club. Right. Like that just comes out of nowhere. And you're like, what the fuck? The one, And then like the main, the owner's dressed like Art the Clown basically at the end. And that's his costume. Right, because him and that one employee end up getting like the two like two for one deal. You could be Tweedledee neck and be Tweedledum. So they have the two different costumes. It's a movie about like a killer spa, and they make it like the most convoluted Machiavellian fucking movie. Possible. 100%. It's like, why are we doing this? This right, movie's right, 87 minutes long. We don't need this much plot. <laughs> no, at all. And I love, you know, another great sort of actress out of the 80s who I always forget about, but she played fucking. Tila in Masters of the Universe plays like the other manager of the club or whatever. And I love the scene where he takes his blind girlfriend to her locker at the club to get her things or else she won't move in with him. And then he abandons like her to go because apparently the the computer system also controls the lockers. Right. And he goes and then the girl plays Tila's like you see a ghostly apparition of this horrible like scarred woman walking around very slowly through the corridors and you can tell she's like about to pull a jump scare on the on the on the blind woman and he comes in and it's her and he takes her mask off he's like what the hell is this oh it's my costume don't you like it poor taste and then they smile at each other and she still works at the spa after that she's still there oh yeah she she, she ain't going nowhere she's great i mean and and then like she's in the shower with with the one girl she's like can you get some men in here <laughs> right. There's a few other people who show up, like Shadow uh, Karen Parsons uh, of Fresh Friends of Bel Air. This is her film debut as uh, one of the other employees. Oh, yeah. Hillary. Right, Hillary, yes, from Fresh yeah. Prince of Bel Air. There's that one weird chat where, like, the woman who, like, goes off with a map to find something in, like, the basement, like, yes, talks to her. That, that was the and, one who was going to have the three way. Yeah. Right, yes. And I love this. Like, they hold on, like, the shot of, like, uh, fucking Karen Parsons talking to, like, some lady after this person leaves to, like, go to a set piece. They hold on Karen Parsons and this other woman talking in the bathroom for, like, a solid 30 seconds. It's like, why? Why do we need yeah, to do this? I, I have no idea. And, and that girl who goes in the basement died brutally. Yes. With more of, like, the horrible gore effects where, like, she goes down to the basement, she's looking around. Apparently, it's like, I guess she's also part of that plot, right? She's the, the woman who's in on the deal with the, yeah, the one yeah, guy. Yeah. Who, right. And she ends up, like, getting uh, sprayed through the water system with, like, acid, I think? Yeah, acid. Yeah, and she starts peeling off her own face. 
Right. And the fucked up thing is like later on, like a solid 20 minutes later, somebody like walks down there in the basement and she's still alive and just like horribly burned the fucking ground of the basement. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, the, the uh, paranormal investigator guy finds her, I think. Right, which I, we should mention a bit more about that. There's a one point where he goes to, like, the, the manager guy goes to this paranormal investigator guy who's introduced, like, with a weird EPK wand, just like, I know so much, I can immediately sense who you were the moment you came in, and completely unravels the backstory. Not through any, like, cold reading, but literally, like, he read the fucking script for this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on just, like, every detail. And it's like, oh, don't worry, I know how to handle this. And takes out, as you mentioned earlier, a Luger <laughs> for, like, yeah. a ghost fight? <laughs> what? Yeah. And, and then the guy busts him. Like, he busts him. He's like, dude, that was all in the paper. Like, all this information. He's like, oh, oh well... I could come and pretend to be an insurance adjuster. <laughs> he's, just, he's like, all right, yeah, cool. Like, what the fuck? It's, it's oh. ah. <laughs> it's so stupid. The, the, the big Mardi Gras finale, which has some of the best stuff, with, like, one guy's head explodes in the sauna. For what? I don't know, because we don't see what, what, like, stabbed his face. I have no idea how that. No happened. idea. But nope. more importantly, the best gore effect of this whole movie: a woman goes into the bathroom and she starts like you know taking off like her makeup or whatever. The, the mirror starts shaking, and she's like, "Oh, what the fuck's wrong? What the fuck's happening?" The mirror explodes and completely tears her to shreds, and it's amazing. That's the thing, dude. It's so violent. Yeah. It's so violent and gory, and the gore is really well done. Like it is really, really well done. It's just not framed right at all. <laughs> at all. It's so hard to see at times. And then, like, I still don't understand how he defeats the ghost brother, whatever, at the end with the electricity. It burns her and slash him to, like, a corpse, basically. Like, it just looks like a skeleton, almost. And then it starts to get up. He rips its arm off, and the cop just unloads her gun into its face. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And then it's like, Michael, you won't get away, or whatever starts setting up. And then its eye explodes. And then credits. And then, yeah, <laughs> and it freeze frames. Credits. You're like, yeah, what the fuck? This is how we're ending this. This is great. What a fucking dumb, stupid, great movie. Honestly, yes. That's the thing. Is like, we love talking about these kind of movies on the show. The weird, so bad, they're good movies that don't make like any sense whatsoever. Like, you know, this movie is so on board the moment. Like, you see the opening shot of this movie is a big long take, which there are several of in this movie. Wow, a lot of like weird way long takes. They yeah, go on for way, way too long. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it feels just like, is this like a weird fucking like uh, Altman movie where we're just holding on as like people talk over each other? This is bizarre. But the opening shot of this movie is like this big long take that starts outside of the spa. And you need to see, like, the, I forgot what the full name is, but then all of a sudden lightning strikes and a bunch of the letters are gone except for the ones that make up Death Spa. You know right there, this movie's going to be fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's like Strong Body Health Spa or something like that. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, it sounds totally stupid. But yeah, the Death Spa. I mean, right away. I remember us watching it when that happened. We both went, oh, yeah. I think we gave it a standing ovation at that point. Then there was like another hour, hour 25 minutes to go. <laughs> Legitimately. This movie is so great. And it, it's like always on Tubi. At least I hope it never goes anywhere. But this is one, like, if it goes anywhere, I'm going to seek it out to buy it. Because it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's so ludicrous. And just like I said, another one's like, this movie could only exist in 1989. Only. Yes. At the, like you said, the sort of fall of these crazy health spa clubs. 
that everybody's wearing neon. There's neon lighting everywhere and those glass bricks and there's like jazzercise aerobics happening right next to people on elliptical machines. And also computers are so new that they need to get one specific guy to do it. Just like, you know, computers, right? You know what these new things are. You can right. like, well, I guess this... I designed it myself. So, yeah. Right. Which also I love where like she ends up, I guess like they, they show you that like it's initially getting kind of possessed where like she's writing messages to him. Just like, I love you, Michael. I can't let you leave and shit like that. Yes, please, Michael. We're running out of time. You need to come to me. And he's like, what? It's so fucking dumb. What is that computer control in the gym? Like, I, how does it control the weight machines and the shower temperature? And- also, a big question for me, especially because they're in 1989, how does fucking uh, the, the brother, David, have a home computer that is able to control stuff at the death spa as well? Like no way a personal computer could do that. No, in 1989 at all. No way. Yeah, I don't. You know what? I never thought of that. Unless he's got a fucking cable running underground all the way to his house, where it's somehow linked. But even that, that's far fetched. Yeah, how is he working remotely? I wish the (laughs) cops would just like look at that computer. They're just like, oh, let's see where the wire goes. And there's just like a giant extension cord that runs for like several hundred miles to the death spot (laughs) that no one noticed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like fucking on the ground with like that orange tape holding it down and shit. (laughs) I also love this is a perfect time capsule of not like glitzy LA, but a lot of like the shittiest parts of LA possible. Oh, real gross, like back alley, like just shithole Hollywood. Absolutely. Like wherever the fuck the, the paranormal investigator guy is, like that area looks like so down and dirty. It reminds me of like. This, this part of L.A., is like old 80s movies that took place in Times Square, where you're like, oh, God, New York is gross. That's exactly what this is. Like, even this horrible shopping, the shopping center, which, by the way, the death spa is in a fucking, sh- like, strip mall. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but when they zoom out and they show, like, the logo with the lighting, like, oh, my God. You look, like, behind it, there's, like, just factories with smoke stacks, shit like yep. that, like None of it looks glitzy or nice. Or- it looks like the opening of Blade Runner, which is like giant fires going up and shit. <laughs> it uh, is, yeah, right. Yeah, it's Blade Runner. You see the fucking thopters flying through the fucking flame stacks. I'm a death spa. That's what they call me. Did you get your photos? No, they were personal trainers. <laughs> and it's like, of course, it's one of those classic computers where you know, he's typing on it, and there's giant silver panels with blinking lights everywhere. Because like, that—that's what a computer is, right? Which leads to another one of my favorite moments, where um, the manager and Ken Foray walk in, and Miller just like, you know what? I can't sing these computers anymore. We're gonna shut this off before the Mardi Gras party starts. This is all being run manually now. That's what I'm talking about. And they do one of their many great high fives. There's a lot of high fives. It's a very big, big uh, high fivey movie. And I love like Ken Foray. She throws him through the fucking like window you're like oh he's dead and he, uh, classic kenfrey fashion all, all the movies he was in in the 80s he miraculously comes back to life though i don't Love know it. if he survived by the end of that party where like so many people die horribly in the fire except for like the the manager and his girlfriend i guess are the only people that get out because everyone else is like locked in it's like i don't even know if he survived then well i think it's the manager the girlfriend the cop and kenfrey because he's in the room with the cop the manager and the girlfriend at the end Okay, the four of them get up, but there are, like, point is, many people die horribly in that Oh, yeah, everybody spot. else is dead. Yeah, yeah, worst party you could have gone to. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, Adam, we've talked a lot about Death Spa, so let's go into... Do you have any lingering thoughts possible about Death Spa? I just think Death Spa is one of those undiscovered fucking, like, so bad it's good, like, sleazy horror gems, where it's just, it's so over-the-top crazy, with no like, real, like, logic behind any of it, but you just gotta go with it, and I think if you do, just say, fuck it, like, this doesn't have to make sense, I'll just run with it. It's so silly and preposterous and gory, and like I said, there's gratuitous nudity, horrible acting, just all that stuff. It just, it really works. It's so fun. Yeah, I mean, I second all of that. It's one of the, the better discoveries we've had for sure in that vein. Because, like, there's a certain point after, especially folks like us who, like, are connoisseurs of these funny bad movies. Like, we, we, we're kind of like, there's a point where you almost feel like, is there a dry spell? Are there no, like, classic gems to find anymore? Have we, like, completely tapped that reserve? But then a death spot comes into our lives. And it's a mm-hmm. beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing to unearth this. And especially, you know, that's what Tubi is so great at. That's what we love so much about Tubi. Maybe not so much, you know, the ads where occasionally I'll see, like, Mike Huckabee's fucking face hawking some bullshit. About, uh, like, yeah, that's true. Or, or whatever. Like, that's the thing. Uh, the ads for Tubi, I don't necessarily condone. But the actual films that are on there, I respect with so much, like, dignity. Uh, because you either get, like, Matt, like, they have a couple classics that are on regular streaming services or weird, genuinely good gems that are also on there. And then bullshit like Death Spa. And I love the kind of things that, like, when I want to have a bad movie night, I would put on something like a Death Spa. Like, I did that. Shout out to... Uh, previous guest of the show, friend of the show, Tori and his girlfriend. Uh, I had them watch Death Spa when I went over and visited for Dragon Con. We all had a lovely time. And that's what I'd recommend particularly. If you like hear all of this um, and think, oh, have I already seen the movie? One, you have to see Death Spa to believe it. And two, you should definitely bring along somebody who has no idea what Death Spa is <laughs> to watch this. Because uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty fucking amazing. Absolutely. And that is one of the best experiences of these type of movies. I recently did that uh, you know, during the Halloween season with my brother and uh, demons, he had never seen it, never heard about it. And it, Death Spa is kind of like that, where it's like the people are gonna be like, This is fucking dumb. And as soon as the gore starts, you got them hooked, man. And it, they do not, it's fucking great. I would argue Demons is like a genuinely great movie, though, regardless of like, it's, it's not quite so bad, it's good for me. I think it's just a genuinely fucking kick ass, weird movie. <laughs> No, I agree with you, but I, it's one of those where it's like, if people haven't seen it, they're going to watch and go, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, Demons is the shit. Don't you ever think I'm slandering that movie, you motherfucker. Well, we'll, look, we'll talk about Demons at some other point, but the point is... Goddamn well better. Yes, uh, the point is, though, Death Spa. Gotta see it to believe it. But now, Adam, let's get into uh, our weekly segment we do, The Double Redo. Double Redo. So the double redo is a segment that Adam and I do every week in which we talk about a good and a bad movie uh, related to the topic uh, to, you know, recommend one to all of you and steer you away from one uh, that we don't, you know, want you to watch necessarily. Um, And so uh, we each have that for killer AI movies. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and start off here with my two uh, films. Uh, I'm going to start off first with my good pick, which I'll just say the good and bad pick I did for this uh, were ones I just saw in the last week or so. 
because I was trying to bone up a bit on my killer AI movie. So I'm like, oh, here's a couple I haven't seen before. And one of them I really liked. The other one I didn't so much. So the one I liked is called Class of 1999, which is a movie from 1990 that Adam's actually recommended on the Double Redo himself previously. And I'd heard about this movie. I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. And basically it takes place in the distant future from 1990 of 1999, uh, in which gang warfare has gotten so bad, and particularly like, you know, local high schools. Gangs are rampant and security is up high. So uh, this guy, played by Stacey Keach Jr., uh, proposes, why don't we have some, uh, you know, teachers implemented who are actually uh, robots that we can control and can, more importantly, discipline these children who are, like, wild and unwielding and, you know, are part of, like, big gang violence that's going on in our town. And uh, they can, you know, keep them in line and make them work. And secretly, this is all sort of related to uh, backdoor a deal with the military uh, they're trying to do. But the three teachers are uh, played by uh, Patrick Kilpatrick, uh, John P. Ryan, and Pam Greer herself, um, and are wonderful performances as, like, these three upsetting, shitty teachers that, like, are basically going from, like, oh, we're going to discipline these children, you know, in a violent manner to literally killing them after a certain point. These, like, various gang children who are, like, very over the top, who, like, are in, like, elaborate sort of almost Mad Maxian gear and have, like, punk outfits and shit like that. Um, And... There's a lot of great, like, you know, character actors who appear like the ones I mentioned, but also Malcolm McDowell plays the principal. And there's kind of this interesting, like, subtext you can kind of interpret from this movie about, like, oh, like, the initially the, the robot teachers sort of, like, put the gangs against each other and start kind of, like, causing violence, which kind of feels like a sort of weird military commentary. But also, it gets into, like, dumb over-the-top, like, violence and gore and silliness that's, like, very entertaining to watch. And it's it's another one that uh, was on Tubi. That's where I watched it. And I think it's a tremendous fun time uh, for anybody out there. Um, and then the bad one I have is one that has, I think, a lot of potential to be one of those movies but doesn't quite fit that, called Saturn 3, which is another bizarre sort of a cast and crew behind this movie, uh, where it's directed by Stanley Donnan, uh, who was the guy who directed a bunch of, like, Gene Kelly musicals like Singing in the Rain and a bunch of others. Um, and uh, this was from 1980 and features um, basically this one guy who sabotages um, this mission where um, someone was going to have to go to Saturn 3, which is one of several space stations that um, have accrued on Earth in this, like, distant future, um, where they have people that are on these outposts. The guy who ends up killing that captain and takes his place is uh, played by Harvey Keitel, um, and he goes over to the space station where the two people who are living there are um, lovers who are played by Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett. Um, and uh, while Harvey Keitel is there, and he's trying to, like, sort of get his way on to, like, you know, towards Vera Fossa and also trying to take over the space station, basically, by way of introducing this robot he's created, this artificial intelligence, um, which is, like, this big, bulky, sort of, like, humanoid, like, body that has a weird kind of, like, two eyes on, like, a beanpole. Like, imagine if Wally was on top of, like, Robocop's body. That's what it kind of looks like. It's weird. It doesn't make a lot of sense, like, how that really even, like, works, <laughs> necessarily. But there's a lot of fascinating elements of this movie. Uh, like, once, one, like I said, that cast and that crew, so weird. But also, there's a lot of violent gore. Like, Harvey Keitel kills the captain guy, sucking him out of the airlock, but there's also, like, piano wire in front of it, so the guy turns into, like, mincemeat. And it's just, like, raining gore on top of Harvey Keitel. It's like, oh, this is so fucking weird. And there's, like, hand explosions and some other, like, violent, gory moments that happen. Uh, but it's also just kind of, like, dull and boring for a lot of it. It's not nearly, like, enough to, like, keep your interest 
with Alman of it, but there's other weird stuff. Like, Harvey Keitel, like, apparently hated this production so much that he did not want to do post-dubbing, and Stanley Donnan chooses to, like, get a completely different voice actor to dub him over. So it's like Harvey Gaitel talking with a mid-Atlantic accent. It's so weird and off-putting if you've, like, watched as many Harvey Gaitel movies as I have. It's so insane. It's just like, what the fuck is this even? It's one of many other things that, like, make it Saturn 3, like, a fascinating movie, but definitely not one I would recommend. But if you have any curiosity based on these weird things I'm talking about, it's fascinating, but not necessarily, I would say, a good or even so bad, it's a good movie to watch. Uh, yeah, like you said, I've recommended Class in 1999 on here before. Uh, I think that is just such a fucking wacky, fun movie. Um, like, why Stacey Keach has those contacts in. And that hair. And that fucking hair. What is going on here? It's probably one of the... I think it's also the first time... Maybe Death Warrant was, but I think it's probably the first time I saw the consummate stunt performer slash character actor Patrick Kilpatrick and anything. And he's really kind of scary in this. Like he's pretty intimidating and terrifying. And also Pam Greer is great. The, uh, the other, I can never remember his name, but the other teacher, great. John P. Ryan. Yeah. He's amazing. John P. Ryan. Yeah. He's really good. Uh, It's just, it's a fun, violent, brutally violent at times, crazy movie. Like it's crazy, but it's so just entertaining and interesting. Avoid the sequel. Uh, at all costs. I think there might even be three of them now, but I know the well, second There's one... a weird thing where, like, this is, like, the second one technically to Class of 1984, which is from the same director and a lot of the other people involved, but it's, like, yeah, that's not story-wise related, I think, right? Uh, I don't believe so. The second one, Class of 1999-2, The Substitute, is a direct sequel. Uh, right, which I believe was your bad on that same double redo so where you recommended Class of 99. It's so fucking bad. I, uh, less I'll talk about it, the better. It's just it's it's bad, but uh, yeah, I really really dig Class of 1999. I think it's one of those sort of under appreciated like early sci-fi violent gems. Like it, it's super fun. It's not great. Like you're not gonna watch it. Be like this is the best movie I've ever seen. But I'd be really surprised if anybody who listens to the show watches it doesn't at least have a good time with it. And Saturn Three, I have seen, but it was so long ago. I don't really remember it. But I do remember, why is Harvey Keitel sound like that? And now I know. But yeah, I was always very like, that's not his voice. But yeah, it's just, it's one I can't really comment on. I remember thinking the robot was really dumb. Uh, but then again, you know, back in the A, low budget. But B, back in those days, I mean, you got to figure like, if Robbie the robot was so like identifiable. And that's a dumb robot. Like, it's so iconic. But it's dumb. It just like Robbie the robot is at least more mobile than this guy, who like moves around that's like true. not even the Tin Man has less leg articulation than the robot that's in Saturn Three. That is very very true. But uh, yeah, I can't really comment much on it. But I, I just remember thinking it was bad then, so I'm sure it's no good now. But okay, for my goods and bads, uh, for my good, I have a movie that came out like 2013 in England. I think around. Released here around 2014, uh, like DVD direct to streaming. Uh, it's this weird little British slash Australian like movie called The Machine, starring uh, Toby Jones, which people might know from like uh, Black Sails, the Stars Pirate Show. I think that's probably his biggest claim to fame. Uh, he's like a program designer who designs AI, uh, and it's in the of course, obviously they want to use it as military uses and stuff. He designs a robot 
body that can house his AI. And it's Katie Lloyds, who most people know is like Black Canary from the Arrow show. The thing is, he designs it, and she has like almost a child's mind. And he has to teach her and sort of get her up to speed from what his superiors want her to do. And she's very, it's one of, I mean, it's an amazing performance that like nobody knows about. She's so good in it. And there's this really cool like dance scene where she's like almost like purring like a cat. You can see her like the, all the circuitry underneath her glowing orange, like as she moves and dances. But it's just a really interesting movie. Like what happens if, if like to the creator who creates this basically new life? Like, what are you going to be responsible for now? And it's it's a really, really smart little movie that nobody really knows about. And it's kind of a shame. It's it's one that I've toyed with uh, picking for the show. It's ones I've toyed with, like, talking out on another podcast, uh, our friend of the show, Rave Tulsa's podcast, about it's just... It's a really smart little independent movie that, I, I mean, again, not groundbreaking, not going to blow... You know, be like, oh my God, it's your favorite movie. But it was my favorite movie of the year I saw it. But then for my bad, I have a movie that sounds like it could be so fun. It's Willy's Wonderland. The idea of mute Nicolas Cage, who's just fucking so like hyped up on energy drinks, fighting the animatronics from Five Night at Freddy's, basically. And that's basically what the movie is. But the second they introduce this cast of you know, rebellious teenage kids are going to sneak into this place. And it's also like the local law knows about this because it's sacrifices or whatever. Like they just try to make too much out of what ultimately could have just been a simple little, either a short or, you know, 70 minute to 80 minute movie of just Nicolas Cage fighting these things at random intervals while he's also trying to clean the place that they're in. Uh, But ultimately it just gets lost in trying to add too much to a story to flesh it out that doesn't need it. And, uh, you know, it was one, it was kind of during the beginning of the, like the recagescence, like this was right around like Mandy and all that stuff. And I, this one just does not hold up, does not have staying power. It's really, really not good. I put it right on the level of the banana splits movie, which also is very terrible. Um, which is unfortunate. Like I said, there, there could be a lot of fun here, promise here, but it's just ultimately a really big letdown. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen The Machine, uh, though a few corrections. When it did come out in 2013, to you're referring to not Toby Jones, but Toby Stevens is the name of that actor. Oh, yeah, Toby Stevens. Yeah, it's not Toby yeah, Jones. Toby Jones, because when you said Toby Jones, like, he's made his claim to famous Vikings. I'm like, what, the guy from The Mist and the voice of Dobby the Elf? Like, what are you talking about? What? Yeah, yeah, it's not the guy, it's not the fucking guy from Captain America. My right. bad. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, now but, I kind of wish it was. <laughs> I mean, he became a killer AI too by Take Captain America too, because that's still, true. Well, Zola, yeah. Um, but yeah, I heard about that movie. I've never seen it before. It's a shame. Also, I think a big part of it is just that's such a generic title, and I think that movie got lost so hard because it's called The Machine. Like I had to I ask you, like, which machine are you referring to? Because there's like many movies named that. Oh yeah. Terrible title. And then I have seen Willy's Wonderland, and I think it was a combination of like what you're talking about, where it's like part of like the cageisance, but also that was pre-vaccine pandemic, and people were like still very desperate for entertainment at that point. So it was like Willy's Wonderland, sure, and also a bit of like that the weird Five Nights at Freddy's fandom that's become like so obsessive. Like when we're we gonna get the movie? I guess we're gonna get one now. 
because they've announced yeah. like casting and shit like that. Jason Blum finally did that. Um, so I'm sure this movie will like disappear even more than it has already. Uh, but yeah, even when I saw it then, like I did not get like all the weird hype. Like it sounds like it's one of those movies where I saw the trailer and I'm like, I kind of got all I wanted out of this with the trailer. And then you watch the actual movie and it's like, uh, we got to fill up time. And that's what it really feels like. The animatronics are also people in, like, kind of bad suits. And it's, like, I think just a poorly filmed movie in general. And I agree with you. Like, Cage is having fun in this role where he's not speaking at all. Like, the best scene of the movie is the pinball scene. Where he just goes, like, wild on a pinball machine. Like, that's a fun moment. But the moment those kids enter into it, it's just, like, I really don't give a flying fuck about any of this. Or the weird backstory they give about what this fucking place is. Like, I don't need any of that shit. I just sort of had Nicolas Cage, like, fighting... Better animatronics, quite frankly. Agreed. 100%. That's all you need. Adding these stupid kids who are going to go in there and get high and bang. Like, all right, stop. In an abandoned Chuck E. Cheese style place, right? That's the best place. Yeah, let's go to Major Magic so I can deflower you. Like, fuck off. It's so stupid. It's <laughs> just like right there in front of uh, Pasquale, the chef, and fucking Charles <laughs> Entertainment Cheese. Ugh, <laughs> oh, you want me to wear the condo, baby? I like pizza, you like pizza, I like pizza too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's have sex, and then we can play the Star Wars trilogy arcade game that's over there. I always love that fucking game. Yeah, baby, <laughs> like you sit in the cockpit of the actual X-Wing. <laughs> if I get to this certain stage, I can fight Darth Vader and Boba Fett. <laughs> Oh, baby, come on, brother, baby, aren't you fucking hot for it now? So <laughs> fucking dumb. I'm going to win you that inflatable hammer. Listen, baby, when you turn it upside down, it goes, Bleh. and we turn it the other way, Bleh. is that hot? <laughs> we have to stop this, whatever we're doing. <laughs> this must be stopped. So let's wrap up by restating our titles for everybody out there. Um, uh, my good pick was Class of 1999, and my bad was Saturn 3. And my good pick was the regrettably titled The Machine, and my bad pick was Willy's Wonderland. Yes, and submit your own double reduce to the various sort of places where uh, we have feedback available. We'll talk about that here as we end the show, but stay tuned. We'll be doing our picking for next week's episode at the very end of this one. So uh, we want to thank, first off, Chris Oliver for our intro and outro music for the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to uh, Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water for all his great stuff on various socials. And thanks, of course, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash pod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to vote in polls for topics and movies that we cover and listen to bonus podcasts like um, this week that we're putting this up. Uh, Friday is Friday the 13th. And in honor of that, we are doing a commentary on the Friday the 13th remake uh, which Adam and I have a lot of thoughts on and uh, feel is an underrated gem in the slew of horror remakes out there. Yeah, for sure. And even in the franchise itself. Yes, upper echelon for sure. But you'll get to hear all about that as we talk about uh, it over there. Um, and uh, you can also uh, find us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. Um, and you can also uh, submit feedback to us at our email, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. All that's spelled out. And uh, for more of me specifically, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and uh, other places as at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com 
And uh, shout out, Adam, you mentioned Nicolas Cage movie. Um, I believe the day this episode's going up, uh, I will be a guest on the Better Than Bad podcast, where uh, basically on that show, it's similar to ours, where they cover the most high-rated movie for an actor on IMDb and their lowest-rated movie. And I talked about Nick Cage on there, where his highest-rated movie, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and his lowest-rated movie, Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, good God. By the way, copyright infringement, copyright infringement, tell them they're going to get a notice from my lawyer. <laughs> of course, yes, because we're the first podcast to ever do one good movie and one bad movie. No one's ever done that before. No, we're the first podcast to talk about movies, period. Well, that's true. Back in 2018, at the <laughs> the invention point. I had the first podcast with two white guys as the host. I mean, very true, right? We're real yeah. trailblazers and innovators because of something. Two fat white guys. <laughs> I mean, look, like body positivity all around, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Right, yeah, but seriously. First rotund... Neckbeard white guys to talk about. Hey, hey, I shave my neckbeard. I I don't have that. Give me that much. <laughs> no, you're right. You just wear the trilby. Well, I mean, it's fashionable and stylish, you know. Of course, like, <laughs> well, look, look, while we were busy studying podcasting, we also studied the blade. Okay. Uh, yeah. We I will bathe my katana in your lover's blood, my lady. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell people where they can find you after that glorious comment? <laughs> yeah, man. You can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. It's A T O M underscore or R underscore A T A M. Fuck, I'm still laughing about the neckbeard. And you can find me on uh, Letterbox at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N, Milady. If you want to hear more of this for some ungodly reason, uh, follow yeah, us on Apple Podcast, <laughs> Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. Uh, if you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? Which is a shout out. This week marks uh, the year anniversary of us joining Talk Film Society. So, you know, it's been a great home to us this whole year. And we've had a lot of great guests that who have been on other shows on the TFS network and, and stuff like that. It's uh, It's been a tremendous fun time and we'll continue to be on there as long as they will have us, which shouldn't be too much longer. Right, because hot, you know, big secret. We're actually trying to take it down for the inside. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, if you, you know, uh, along with uh, on Talk Film Society, there's a whole backlog of episodes for us. So about 200 episodes before we join TFS, you can listen to on our Podbean main feed. If you can't support us on the Patreon, we totally get that. Money can be tight for some people. The totally free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because it gets us more visibility out there. Yeah, man. By the way, big ups on Tori. I've seen you sharing the shit. Thank you, buddy. And uh, everyone else, you're dead to me. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But now, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week's show, as we do at the end of every episode, where Adam and I, you know, we trade off on one of us is two good picks, one of us is two bad picks, switch off on the quality for that, depending on the week. And, uh, you know, we uh, each assign numbers between one and ten for each of our choices. So the other person will say, uh, I'm going to pick number seven. And the other person will say, OK, that's close to number eight, which is this particular movie. Um, so that's how we get our good and our bad feature for every week. But... There is this little thing called the Godfather rule, where Adam and I uh, were given vetoes uh, back in May to use, and we have to use them before next May for our next anniversary, um, where, uh, you know, that one single veto, if we hear a choice that we end up picking, and we're like, you know what, I don't want to cover that movie, we just say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, and thus that choice is gone, we have to go with other other choices there. I've used my veto, Adam still has his burn hole in his back pocket, he may use it today uh, as uh, we do our picking 
for next week's episode, which we're doing because it's January, it's cold, and it's bitter. We're out of the holiday season, so we're just stuck with the bitter coldness that's left. So we decided to do a fun little subgenre that, you know, is sometimes around but doesn't get enough credit of snowy suspense. So think like Fargo, movies like that where it's like a cold, bitter environment, and there's some kind of like, you know, murder or horrible shenanigans going on underneath the snow. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny doing the research for uh, our picks. Way more than I thought there were. It is yeah. a pretty healthy subgenre. For sure. For sure on that. Uh, and I have the two good picks. Uh, you have the two bad picks. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, for my two good picks, please pick a number between one and ten. Mm-hmm. Let's go number two. Okay. At number three, I have a movie that I haven't seen, but I've heard so much praise for, especially as of recent. But I'm just like, oh, you know, I should finally see this. That stars one of our favorite guys, uh, Guy Pierce. I have Ravenous. Oh my God, you've never seen Ravenous? No, I haven't. I figured this would be a good oh, chance to do it. Oh, I'm so stoked on this one. I fucking love Ravenous. It is such a bizarre movie. Oh, hell yeah. No, I am definitely not taking the cannoli. Oh, fuck yeah. I can't wait to talk about it. And just be sure, it does fit the topic, right? There's a lot of snow and suspense. The whole movie takes place in the snow. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. and it's very suspenseful and crazy. All right. Well, on the other side of things, over at number 10, I had a pretty fun one I know we have mutual appreciation of uh, from director Bong Joon-ho starring Chris Evans, Snowpiercer. Fuck yeah, great movie. Yes. But now, Adam... Yeah, man. Two bad picks. Hmm. Very curious where this will go. So I'm going to pick number seven. All right, man. At number eight, I have a movie I haven't seen, but it is universally like known as what's a terrible, terrible film. Uh, it's based on a, I think, a graphic novel or a comic book uh, starring host Underworld Kate Beckinsale. I have the movie Whiteout. Okay, I rem- vaguely remember Whiteout. I remember like the poster where it's like Kate Beckinsale. And it's, it's just like, her face. White background. Right, yeah. it's like white, stark white. So it's just like, oh. like Yeah, that. but it's okay. like her, Gabriel Macht from The Spirit, Jake Busey. Like it's it's a really, I, I know nothing about it other than that she's like a cop. But It's I've very much a movie that came and went when it came yes. out. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, what was your other choice, Adam? At number one, I had another female-led movie that I've seen, and I actually liked it on first viewing, but like after thinking about it and stuff, it's just like kind of a, a weak-ass Gerald's Game ripoff, and it was sort of lauded as like, this actress's comeback, and no, I have the Megan Fox starring Till Death. Okay, yeah, I remember you talking about that one and liking it quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's still like, I don't hate it, but it's not that good. Well, yeah, we'll be talking about Wide Out and Ravenous. Next time on the show. Ravenous is the shit. Yes, yes. Uh, But until next time, everybody, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. That's how I feel every week. Mm